Well, we're glad you showed up today. As Greg mentioned, we are in a message series called Unstoppable Joy. And truth be told, um, that sounds just a little bit like overpromise, underdeliver, maybe, or a little too good to be true. Unstoppable joy, because I feel like in my life, it feels like joy can sometimes fade pretty quickly. And when I, when I think about joy, I think of certain moments in my life, like I think about the moment that my sons were born. That's kind of the, the pinnacle of happiness. And I sort of saw those moments of joy to be like the best of the best in happy land. But I think the thing is, like, I saw that as if there's just regular happy, you know, like when you get a really good pizza or you plan that next warm vacation for January. But joy was like, that was happiness on a whole different level, like happiness on steroids. But the thing is, is that's not at all the way God describes this joy that we're talking about in the book of Philippians. That, that's not even close. As a matter of fact, there's a very, very distinct difference between happiness and joy. Happiness, that's when you feel good because good things happen. Joy is an attitude and a way of living that you choose in spite of what happens. So I can tell you, if you're counting on the things that happen to you to find joy, I can almost promise you you're going to be very disappointed. And on the other hand, if you choose the humble path toward joy that God has provided for us, I think you will find a fulfillment and a joy that even though it sounds too good to be true, it's not. When I write letters, I don't normally uh, divide it into chapters, and uh, Paul didn't either, but just so that we can find things in the Bible, we divided the Bible, not we, not me, but it was divided up into chapters and verses so that we could find ideas and thoughts and teachings that would be helpful to us in our lives. So today, we're going through this letter of Philippians, and last week, Greg did chapter one, I'm doing chapter two, and the next two chapters over the next two weeks. But we're coming to this part where Paul, in chapter two, he, he sort of stops and he gives a little, I would say, self-assessment to the people who are hearing his letter, whether they were people that were listening way back then or people listening today, he was essentially pointing out some things and asking questions about if you are a part of a community of faith, have you found it to change your life? So I'm not going to read those very first verses of chapter 1, but essentially he's asking us these kinds of things. Has being a part of a faith community helped to move you forward in your faith? Have you, in, in that community, have you found comfort in difficult times? Has it made a difference in who you are and how you live? Have you found friendships along the way in this community that are truly life-changing? So I think that Paul knew that the huge majority of the people who were going to be taking this self-assessment 
He knew that they had experienced life. They were nodding along with, yes, yes, I've, I've seen those things. I've seen those things. And I think Paul is saying to them and to us, like, so don't waste that. When, when you've seen the good that you have found by being in Christ, let that inspire you to make a commitment to invest in the lives of other people. And he says, make sure that the good that you've seen from God becomes a force to drive you forward in helping to see life change happen in others. So here's how Paul says this as he begins in these, uh, these verses in chapter 2. Specific instructions about how we invest in making others' lives different and better. Philippians 2, 3 through 5 says, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So I don't think we really have to speculate too much about why the Apostle Paul feels like it's important to push us to think about others. Because life happens, right? And it feels like even though we want to invest in the lives of others, it feels like life just sort of piles up. And we feel the stress of life, and we feel the burden of all the things that we have to do, and it just feels as if there is no longer, there's no, we lose the margin. We lose the energy to be able to invest in the life of someone else. We care, but self-preservation kind of tells us, you know what, you, you got to take care of you. There's nothing easy about this life of following Jesus. And it's a part of the reason that I believe that Paul gave us this self-assessment is so that we would ask ourselves, is it possible that you or I have some priorities in our life that need to be changed? And I think that's what Paul is doing to nudge us forward is to consider just that. And there's a foundation. Paul gives these specifics because he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress other people. Be humble. Don't look out only for yourself. But there's one thing that Paul is going to describe that's at the very core of being able to see and treat others differently. And here's what he says. It's, it's that one line, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. In other words, when you think about what you're doing, anything that you do, you just simply ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Now, you might know that that became pretty cliche years back. In the 1990s, that became something that you saw in bracelets and bumper stickers. You saw it everywhere, and it became popular then because there was a student ministry leader in Holland, Michigan, who decided that she wanted to challenge her students to not just like hear about and think about and talk about what Jesus did. She wanted to challenge them to actually live and do what Jesus did. And they started this little bracelet thing, had WWJD for what would Jesus do, so that every time they saw that, they would think, that's how I want to live. 
But she didn't invent that. A hundred years before this lady in Michigan came up with that idea, there was a pastor in a church in Kansas, and he had been preaching to his church, and he'd been telling them, like, I want us, I want us to think about not just what Jesus said, but I want us to actually do what Jesus did. So he preached about it, and he even wrote a book called In His Steps. It's a guy by the name of Charles Sheldon. And the whole point was so that the people would move beyond just simply the ideas and the talk, and they would actually ask themselves, what would Jesus do, and then do that. But you can go back much, much further, because that really is what Paul is saying right here in this verse. When he says, I want you to have that same attitude that Jesus had, he's actually saying to us, I want you to to go a little bit deeper beyond the talk and do what Jesus did. Here's how Paul describes the most important part of what Jesus did. This is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. You know, I think it's hard to grasp the depth of meaning in those words because it's hard for us to really fully fathom the height from which Jesus came and the depths of his selflessness. I've told you before that, you know, for many years I worked in the country of Haiti, and when I moved down there, my first tour of duty, I was a third grade teacher. And when we were there, people from churches who supported, you know, the ministry or supported us and our family, they would come to visit and they would get to see what was happening in the ministry. They would get to meet the students and they would all, you know, roll up their sleeves and get involved in any of the projects that needed to be done. So, There was, as I was rereading these verses this week, I was reminded of one of the moments when one of those visitors came. This guy from Missouri came, and I knew knew his family, so I knew a little bit about him. I knew he was an attorney. I knew he was very well respected and very well known in his community, and I was pretty sure that he lived what I considered a pretty comfortable life, and I thought, like, I wonder how he's going to handle life in Haiti for this week. So one day, I was in my third grade classroom. It was toward the end of the day. And this guy comes to the door, and he says, hey, uh, I was asked to come and fix the toilet in the third grade classroom. So I bring him in, and I swing open the door to our bathroom that has no light, and uh, It had this smell like third grade boys had been going to the bathroom in there because they had. And he looked around for a minute and, uh, you know, he said, I need to go get some tools and I'll be back. Well, in the meantime, school was dismissed. I took all my students out to the front gate where their parents could pick them up. And when I come back into the room, I see this guy and he is literally laying down in this bathroom in this cold, smelly cement floor. 
working some kind of wrench to fix that leaky toilet. And I, I got to tell you, I couldn't help but think, how different is this guy's day today compared to a normal day of practicing law for hundreds of dollars an hour? It was one of those moments that because of his true humility, that really, truly stuck in my mind. So Paul talks about this humility that Jesus has, and he says some specific things. He says, Jesus did not see heaven as something to be held on to. He was willing to leave. And Jesus gave up. The, the original, the Greek language would say he emptied himself. He gave up all those divine privileges, all those things that make him uniquely God. And I think what makes it hard to grasp and that, that we can't quite fathom is the perfection of heaven and also the horrific nature of his death and how far apart those two things really are. I mean, I've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, and I know some of you have, so we've tried to visualize and we've seen images of what it might have been like for that horrific death. But what's even harder for me, what's really, really hard for me is imagining heaven. I mean, I hear talk about streets of gold, and I think, eh, I don't really care about walking on gold streets. And I hear about gates made out of pearl, and I think, like, I'm not really into pearls. But I want you to imagine something with me for a minute. Imagine this. As we try to, to get into our head what heaven could possibly be, let's just start with this world that we live in right now, this world. But instead of this world exactly as it is, you could just take out lying. There's no more lying in the world. No one, it's impossible for any person to ever lie to you again. How much different would our world be? And no war. Never again could one country invade and kill their neighbors. There would forevermore be no war. No more cancer. There would never again be those brutal conversations with the doctor and the conversations about chemo and radiation. There wouldn't be those moments of watching loved ones literally let life slip away because they lose a, a battle to cancer. Or no political infighting. Imagine what that would be like if all the people who were leading in this country always and only were concerned about what was best for the people. There's no more child abuse, no more financial hardship, no other of any kind of pain that we face. Well, that's, that's what Jesus left. The description of heaven that I like is when it says there's no more crying or sadness or sickness, no more death. That's what Jesus left. And I can't really imagine a better, a better picture of what true humility is than what Jesus did to go from that to what he experienced in this world. You know, humility is a funny thing. It's something that 
we love to see in other people, it's, but we like to see it, but we don't want to be it sort of thing. Because we love to hear the stories when the CEO like started in the mailroom and really got to experience everything in the company, or when the executive chef started washing dishes, or when the entrepreneur really was just began by selling, selling stuff out of the garage. We love those stories because we think that's, that's somebody who gets it, who, who can relate. But even more, here's what I think that ma- makes an even bigger impression, and that is, what if a CEO goes back to the mailroom, rolls up his sleeves, and works right alongside everyone else? Or what, what if the executive chef goes back to the dishwashing station and gets to experience what life is really like? That's, that's really what we like to see so that we We get that our leaders get us. There's a reality television show called Undercover Boss. You ever seen that one? So in case you haven't, I'll just give you the quick scenario, and that is a business owner or a business executive kind of goes incognito. They they change their appearance so that they can go into the company at an entry-level job and work alongside their employees completely unknown, spend about a week experiencing everything they experience, and then at the end, it's brought back around and there are, there's a reveal with the face-to-face conversations between this leader, this owner or executive, and the people that he's worked with. I want you to take a quick look at this video. What is this guy doing here? We have to do this a little bit faster. As you can see, you should just stop the wheel. Okay. Put it in. Everybody here has something to do. It all goes together, huh? Yeah, it all goes together. Got it. I'll see if I can do this wood right. Oh. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm a little nervous. I'm too old to be moving this fast. Oh. (laughs) Sorry. Just announced 12 hours today. Is that good? That's good. Overtime, but I never miss overtime. Personally, I spend more time here than with my family, you do? my friends, and my girlfriend. Five in the morning to six in the afternoon. Getting home around seven. All you do is just basically sleep. Sleep and work. Sleep and work. How old are you, Christian? I'm 19. Wow. Yeah, I dropped out of college. And How come? When I graduated from high school, I had a scholarship for soccer. You did? Yeah. But my mother got skin cancer, and I felt bad leaving and not helping out my dad. Well, I just decided to stay and, and I helped him out. I started playing soccer just because all I really needed was soccer shoes and a ball. Where were you going to go to school for soccer? I was going to go to Humboldt State University. You were? But at, at the end, it doesn't matter because right. my mom didn't have insurance. Oh, my God. It's hard for me, like... Like, I hear people complaining. I don't get mad at them or anything, but I see just the life they have. Yeah. Yeah. I got got choked up today. Christian is the way you'd, you'd like to have everyone in the world be, willing to sacrifice whatever they have for other people. Hey, how you doing? Did you make it through the rest of the shift? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Christian, I'm 52 years old, 
and I've never been touched in a way that you touched me. What you've done, sacrificing your future for your family. So to help out with your mom's medical expenses, I'm gonna give you $10,000. You all right? Yeah, you're speechless. On top of that, I don't want you to work full-time anymore. I just want you to work part-time. And on top of that part-time, we're gonna give you $15,000 a year for two years. Wow. So you can make your full salary that you're making today, and we'll go back to school. That's great. Okay? In addition to the $30,000, I'm gonna pay for your college so that you don't have to be under all this pressure and know that your family's taken care of. That means a lot to me. My kids have, you know, everything. And when I heard your story, it was really, I just wanted to help you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, I'll see you. Hey, Dad, I'm gonna go to school. They're gonna pay for my college. They're gonna give our family $10,000 for medical expenses and to pay the house bills. I'm still laughing for you. I'm crying because I'm happy and just don't know what to say. There's one thing I think we probably, every person in the room would agree on is we don't like to work for someone that we think doesn't really get what our life is like. And I think that's part of the remarkable thing is, you know, sometimes we think that, you know, we might work for the same company, but those people up there, whoever they are, they, they just may not really get it. And to me, that's the most remarkable thing about this story with God. Because God, in his story, comes down in this world to be with us. He comes down with skin on, incognito, so that we, we may not know by looking at him that it's God, but he's here. And so that when he says, when he says, you know, this really is the best way to live, we can trust him because he came in at that entry level and he experienced everything just like we did. There's a verse in the Bible that actually says that. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, we don't have a priest talking about Jesus. We don't have a priest who's out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all. So just for a moment, let's, let's go back to, to Paul's words about Jesus. He said, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Be willing to humble yourself. And I think for us, in the back of our minds, we still have to think, yeah, but, you know, Jesus, he still was very, very different because he knew everything and he could do anything. It's like all the superpowers were wrapped up into one. And so we say, yeah, I'm supposed to live like Jesus because he came and did it, but he's God and I'm not, so that's not really fair. It's not a fair comparison or fair expectation. But I'd like to ask you, if you would, to, let's just talk theology for just a minute. So Paul's big point is this, is that God himself comes down from heaven, and he, he God, through Jesus, empties himself of all of his divine power. And our question, though, then becomes, if, if he gave all that up, then how 
how could he do the things that he did? Because he was very different than the people around him. So how could we ever be like him? Like, we don't have that kind of power. And that's probably even more the genius of God's story is that we, we actually do. We have that power. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Listen to what it says about the power we have as followers. It says, I want you to know that the great and mighty power that, that God has for us followers, it is the same wonderful power he used when he raised Christ from death. It says the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verses 11. It says, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, you might have heard the story of this moment when Jesus is baptized. And do you remember what happens immediately after? There's this dove that flies down, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And it says he descends, he descends on him. So Jesus got that same Holy Spirit power that we get, the same spirit that we invite to live in us. Jesus invited to live in him, and that's how he powered those things. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live in ways that really we can probably hardly even imagine. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul is describing, here's what it's like when you live with the Holy Spirit directing you. He says, you're going to find that your life is different because characteristics that normally would be used to describe God will be used to describe you. Your life will be described in those ways with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And he goes on to describe what it is that that we will have in our life that God grows in us. So why do we say joy unstoppable? It's unstoppable because joy comes from God, not because of what happens to us in our daily life and in our circumstances. Joy is in you. But you will always have to live with one great choice, and that is this. Will you choose every day to stay in step with the Spirit of God living in you, or are you going to try to choose to live under your own power? Because the path to joy, the path that God gives to us to find true joy that lasts comes by letting the Holy Spirit lead us through a path of humility to investing our lives for the benefit of other people.